Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple, where I am serving up the best thriller writers in the world today. That's right, we are your front row seat. Don't believe me? Just take a look at the past episodes. Hey, before uh, I get to today's show, which is a, it's going to be a treat. I want to remind you, if you haven't subscribed to our channel yet, would you do that for me? You can go to youtube.com slash David Temple author, soon to be the Thriller Zone, and make sure you subscribe. Tell us what you think about the show. You can add uh, comments there in the comments below. Also, go to our website, thethrillerzone.com. And uh, let us know what you think about the show. If you like it, if you hate it, if it's someone you'd like to hear, we'd love to hear from you. Okay. On today's show, imagine taking a, a former media exec, Time Warner, for about two decades, and putting into his hands the tools to create the life of his dreams. Those tools, pen and paper, or keyboard, and the dream to become a best-selling author. Well, guess what? After 20 plus years, he did just that. Paul Vidic wrote a book called The Matchmaker and swell looking cover, right? And we're gonna talk about how that came about, how he got to create that dream of his. That and so much more without any further ado, Paul Vidic right here on The Thriller Zone. Well, welcome to The Thriller Zone, Paul. It's nice to have you. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Yeah. Well, we're going to be talking about this beauty. This look, look at that beauty. Ooh, so it's a many great cover. I oh. like the cover, <laughs> dude. Everybody loves this cover. The minute I saw it, I'm like, the mystery of you know the guy that you can't quite see in the fedora, and I'm like, ooh, that's tasty. Yeah, the artist did a good job, and you know, playing off of the autobiography of Marcus Wolf, who was one of the inspirations, and his. The title of his book is The Man Without a Face. And and he picked that up. So I, I, I was indebted to him. Yeah, it's absolutely stunning. I took it in my booth when I was doing a little uh, promo work for you. And I lit it up. I, I lit the uh, inside of the booth to match the color of the book. And I'm like, oh, Paul, I geek out on stuff like that. <laughs> okay. So do I. I mean, the covers are a unique thing because... So many covers in the uh, spy genre are sort of these shadow men. And it's a little bit of a joke on the inside when you see a a new book like that, because it's like, oh, that's another one of those. It's like, there's nothing unique to that, even though it may look good. But when you put it on a wall of other similar books, you know, how does it stand out? Yeah. Well, it stands out when you crack the cover and you start reading and you're like, oh. I'm in for a ride. Well, it it was a ride to write. <laughs> well, and thank you for saying that. It I try and start my books with, I guess, sort of what in advertising you call a hook. Sure. And in 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 Shakespeare, you call it the 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 trigger moment, the the moment that sort of sets the action of a novel going. 
And in this novel, it, it starts off with this young woman who is at home waiting for her late husband as you know, we've all experienced waiting for a late spouse. Sure. You're, you're ironing and you're doing things. And then suddenly a stranger arrives at the door and gives you the news that the person you were waiting for isn't coming back. Yeah. And that's a shocking thing. And of course, it sets up the mystery of like, why isn't he coming back? And who is he? And, you know, from there unfold all sorts of, you know, interesting things. Yeah, you stole my open. I was sitting there going to say, you know, you, you painted this picture so beautifully. She's ironing. She's hanging out. She's listening to the sounds of the city and she's checking the clock. And, you know, where is he? And all of a sudden, knock, knock, knock. And I'm, oh, it's him and it's not him. And who are you and why are you here? And that panic that sets in. Anyway, it's a great way to kick off the book. And I want to get I want to drill down on that. But I want to I want to ask you a couple things because as I get to know you, Having spent a life as a senior exec in the entertainment business for God, two, two decades or more, what finally, I'm curious, what finally drove you out? Was it just time for retirement or you said, you know what, that passion that I planted a couple of decades ago, I want to fulfill that? It was the latter. Yeah. You, you, you don't just decide to be a writer at 60 or 60. It has to be a calling that's embedded in you from an early age. And in some ways, I was the writer who then found an interest in business because I was pretty confident I'd never make it and support the family with my writing. So I got an MBA and had a big career. And at one point when I was confident enough about myself and financially secure enough, I sort of remembered the contract I had made with my younger self, which was when you can you're going to leave this job, this corner office, this bloated salary, and you're going to go back to what you wanted to do when you were 23 years old. And I did. And a lot of people were surprised. A lot of people in my job never knew I had an ambition to write. So when I said, I'm not renewing my contract, it was like, wow, where did this come from? And of course, it had always been there. I just didn't share that secret with them. It was my own secret, I guess. You know, I, I, I did a little hunting and I tracked down Wharton Magazine and I read this article that you wrote and I loved it. It was from, I don't know, about five, six years ago. <clears throat> and it started out with an interesting fact that I never knew. I never knew that uh, Raymond Chandler was 51 before he wrote The Big Sleep. So Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I did after I left my job to sort of prop up my confidence, you know, in those early years before I had published anything, was to make a list of all those writers whose first works were written when they were past 50 or past 60. And it's a very long list and a very, you know, uh, a list of, of very well-known writers. And that was just sort of my personal sort of confidence builder that, that was important. Because writers, you don't know you're actually going to be able to do it until sure. you do it and then have it in the hands of people. And they say, oh, well, that's pretty good. And I could read that and recommend it to a friend. There was another part in that article, uh, and I'm going to bring this up later in the interview. And, and I love this. It's, you know, it, people often ask, oh, you wrote about being a spy. You must have been a spy. 
uh, you know, you, you, you wrote about the CIA. You must have been in the CIA. And what I love about it is you're like, okay, well, as an executive Time Warner, I wasn't really kind of uh, much of a spy and so forth and working at the CIA. But as a senior exec, I knew, and this is what I loved. I understood how bureaucracy functioned beneath the work are the personalities that compete, men and women with ambition, who game the politics of the organization, who betray colleagues to advance themselves. So you took all that knowledge and you put it in the novel, but it was, it was the way that you put that. You're like, oh, okay, well, let's see, what can I take from my past that makes so much sense into my future? Well, it, exactly. It's, you know, the best novels, spy novels or other novels are really character driven. And you're looking at the, the motivations and the inspirations, the, the yearnings of individuals. And when you're in business, that's a whole part of what's going on. You, you're there and you're paid to do work, but the dynamics of the office is all about these, you know, rivalries and, and you know, the, the rumors, the sorts of things that go on with people in their regular lives. And I would say that one of the, the great inspirations for me as a writer was to deal directly with Steve Jobs on a transaction that sort of transformed the music industry in 2001. And you think about Steve Jobs as this sort of iconic individual, brilliant, smart, and, and he was, but at the same time, what, you, what, you, what I learned from him is that he was a human being driven by his passions. So even though he was the CEO of Apple, he was driven by his passions, a passion for music and, and, a, and a generalized dislike for the executives in the music industry. And it was that dislike <laughs> that, that was on full display when I first met with him. And he said, you guys have your heads up your a-holes. <laughs> and and I, I sort of looked at him and, and said, well, you know, Steve, you're, you're quite right. And, but it was that humility on my part, which actually undermined his arrogance. And he didn't quite know how to deal with that. And, but for me, it was like, that's what people are. And so in the CIA, if you're going to the director of central intelligence with a problem or an executive action request, you have to play who he is. And you have to play into those, you know, who that, who that person is. And, and so in some ways, writing about spies is really writing about people. It's not writing about men or women. It's about character. I have to, because my mind is still tripping on the fact that you got to, you were probably, were you instrumental in helping put that whole deal together, how Apple iTunes kind of took over the way music was? Handled? Yeah, actually it was, wow. it was my, myself and my boss and, and, and Steve Jobs after Time Warner and AOL merged, reached out to us because he had a problem. He had put the iPod into the market and it wasn't selling. And he realized uh, that in order for it to sell, it needed music. And to get music, he needed all the music. So we started talking to the music industry, but most of the industry didn't like him and they didn't like the deal he was offering. So he and I spent six months together designing what became iTunes and licensing our music. And I, I, was, I was sort of a 
disruptive character in the music industry. And I'm the one who told Steve, we should sell these songs for 99 cents, which of course he loved. And the rest of the industry did not like, but it was the only way it was gonna be successful. You can't charge people what you think you need to earn in order to make up for lost profits in not selling CDs. You have to charge what people are willing to pay. And so 99 cents was this uh, price clearing, you know, level that ultimately I think was probably a big part of the success of iTunes. Wow. Um, that was such a ginormous pivotal turning point in the industry. I mean, and you were right there front row. That's amazing. It was, it was interesting because you know, I've reflected on this later and been interviewed a number of times about it. It's like the, the importance of personality and business decisions. He could not have gotten the deal done with anyone else because everyone else wanted to have this locked up digital song that would cost $3.99. And Steve would never have done the deal. And right. And if you think about it, if he hadn't done, we hadn't done that deal, there was no other technical solution other than, you know, Napster. Right. And if, if you hadn't done the download, which was part of iTunes, you would never have gotten to Spotify. You, it's like, it was this, this moment where the technical partner could only have been Apple because we dealt with Mashustado, we dealt with Sony, we dealt with, and none of them, you know, had the, they, none of them were willing to stand up to the music industry. They were, the music industry said, we demand this and we demand this type of security. And Steve is the only one who said, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> if you want to go along with, and, and the only one who would sit with him was Warner where I worked and it was it's sort of a bizarre thing how you know it's a little bit like Putin right now it's like why is this going on because of one man yep. one man is making everybody miserable and and uh, and it was you know it was I was I really enjoyed business but it it ultimately wasn't what I wanted to do I I continued to write on the side I had an ambition that, you know, I, I finally decided to act on. And while business is great and, and everyone likes to get paid, they, you know, it's a job. Yeah. <laughs> and you can get bored of your jobs. And, and sometimes change is a wonderful tonic. And for me, change was jump off the cliff without your wings and see what happens if you yeah. can fly on, if you can figure out a way to fly in your, on your way down. <laughs> I've always been a big fan of that. Now, let me, I wonder if I can ask you this one question because I have had this thought for so long and I'm sitting here talking to the guy who helped design it. So I have to ask you, and if you can't answer it for whatever reason, I totally understand. But, and having been on the other side, I was on radio for my entire professional career, 25 years. So I, I know what it's like to be on the side where I'm playing the music and we're, right. you know, we're getting paid, so to speak, for playing the music. So, when, when, you know, God, it started with Napster, then it started, then iTunes kind of turned the whole thing upside down. So now to this day, Paul, 
I belong to a subscription service for iTunes, so I can listen to all the music I want for like 10 bucks a month. So I've always wondered how in the world do all these people get paid on that little subscription service? There's a calculation made on all the streams that are played. And what they do is they calculate the number of streams per an individual song, make it a fraction of the total number of streams, and then apply the $10, your portion of that $10. And, and many of the recording artists who are not very prominent complain. It's like they get our music, but we get a check for 66 cents. <laughs> Whereas the, the people who are the, the superstars make a lot of money. But that has always been the problem with the music industry. It's the, the top five or 10% of the acts are the ones that make most of the money. And that hasn't changed. You know, this notion of the upside downness of, of the business with the, the top 10% having, you know, 90% of the income, you know, remains a part of the business because it still becomes a marketing problem. You know, how do you get your new song to a new band played? And the thing that was wonderful about curated radio, which is, the radio you worked in, right. is that people like you so listen to a lot of music and you selected the songs you thought would be interesting, new songs that should get aired. Yeah. That curation doesn't exist now in the same way. And it is, actually makes it difficult for new bands to, you know, a place on the, on the playlist. Yeah. And if you would let me one more thing that we're going to get back to you because it's all about you but this thing is another fascinating thing yeah when when radio i think radio has died in a lot of ways so when radio died and i couldn't be pulling the songs that i wanted to play and introduce my audience to those people it has made me say since then wow on this podcast do you know how much I would love to sit down with Paul Vidic and, and, and intersperse the conversation with a couple of our favorite songs that we think would be uh, a great accoutrement to this show. However, we can't because of the logistics and the legal ramifications that if I play it, I've got to, you know, I got to pay to play. So that's true. Yeah. Uh, the old time radio didn't have to play because it had an exemption, but all streaming services, including the one you're suggesting, would have to pay some amount of money and get yeah. the clearances. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for that, because that's fascinating to me, and I appreciate it. Of course, now, I want to know how, and, and I have to believe, in this short amount of time we've spent already, I, I know you're going to have a great answer for this, working for Time Warner in those heydays and pushing all the right buttons and doing deals with Steve Jobs and so forth. How has that background prepared you uh, for life as a chart-topping author? Well, it's, you know, when I was young, I had an ambition to write, but I didn't really have the, ex the life experiences that I could put into stories. I had the ambition, but I didn't have the base. And, and I say, you know, the thing that happens as you grow up and you become an adult and you have family and, and you work in the world, you see how the world works. Mm -hmm. You see how character develops and you become much more sensitive to those issues. And all of that really is the foundation for your writing, for somebody who's writing about character. And so you have to know characters, you have to know the world, you have to 
you know, have that experience. So it was, I, you know, I'm, there are some people who write wonderful novels in their 20s and, and then go on to have, you know, big careers. And there are people like me and like Raymond Chandler. Yeah. <laughs> who, who start writing later in life. And, and it's, and I think they bring a richness to their, to their prose and to their stories. Yeah. It, it reminds me of a conversation and I've used this on the show before when I saw Jeff Daniels on 60 minutes talking to uh, one of the reporters and saying, they were talking about, Hey, you, you know, you've really blown up here to kill a mockingbird. I think he was doing on stage in New York. I got a chance to see, and he was talking about, yeah, look, it took me till 61 to do my breakout. And, and I often think to myself, isn't it interesting that, you know, there's so much time spent on youth, talking about youth and so forth in the culture and that, you know, why can't you begin uh, a robust career in the forties and the fifties and the sixties like this? So I love hearing you saying that. I think now it's people now don't have, when they get out of college, they don't have the expectation that they're going to join one company and then retire with a pension from right. that one company. There's an expectation almost that your your life is this constant movement, you know, from one type of job to another type of job, maybe in the same industry or maybe you change. And it's the internet, the startup world has really altered the way that people think about their lives. And, you know, and I think that's a wonderful thing to be yeah. able to, to be challenged and to, you know, be successful in one or two chosen careers. And we've got a kind of a double whammy inspiration point from the standpoint of the rules have changed. Pandemic has changed business dramatically and probably will be a paradigm shift for decades to come. And I think it's been freeing in its own way too, don't you think? Yes, I, it has been. I think I look at people in the publishing industry who live in the suburbs of New York City and they would commute an hour each way each day yeah. and and lose two hours. Maybe they do reading, but they're very happy right now to have either a hybrid or remote work status. And for me as a writer, I, I'm sort of told I'm completely remote anyways. <laughs> I don't have to go to an office. What, what you see behind me is sort of my office. But I think I think about all the plane trips I took, all the travel to Europe, all the travel to the West Coast, the hundreds of hours, and and it was you know it was fun in a way, but sometimes the 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 movement can um, actually be a way of just going nowhere. Yeah, you're 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 sort of in an airplane for eight hours, and you are in this cocoon of thought, but you haven't done anything and you show up somewhere and you have a three hour meeting and then you return, but you've lost a lot of time. And it's, you know, I, I think the one thing that remote work allows you to do is to be in some ways more efficient in your, your whole self. I know in, in my day, you know, I, I get up early, I write for four or five hours and, and then I have, you know, the rest of the day to, do other things. I help my wife teach literature, which has been 
an inspiration for me. I'm one of those people who went to college and sort of an ambition to write, but felt like I shouldn't take any English classes in college or literature classes because I would probably want to use the rest of my life after college to read what I wanted to read. And of course, when you get out and then get into the world and you have a family and you have a job, you realize you don't have any time to read anything yeah. or very little unless it's, you know, your unemployed or is part of your work. So teaching with my wife now, teaches at Hunter College, has given me the freedom to, to read all the classics. The Aeneid, the Iliad, the Odyssey, all of Shakespeare, and, and things that, and this started about eight years ago, and which coincided with my own writing career. So I've I've used that education to inspire me and also to help me think through some of the characters. I one of the things I did in my first book was I wanted to, I wanted to, which takes place in 1953 in the early CIA. I created a character called by the name of George Mueller. And he, like many of the early OSS members, had gone to an Ivy League college, Yale, uh, and studied English literature. And then the war interrupted, and um, they joined the CIA in order to do good work in the world. Right. So they they were, you know, broadly educated liberal arts graduates. And that fascinated me. Men who wanted to go off and do good in the world at working for the CIA at a time when the CIA was um, a pretty unknown organization. And so the, the characters I created were characters who I could have known when I was an undergraduate. People like me who rather than go to Time Warner ended up going into the CIA. Same background, same mm-hmm. interests, different career paths. You're listening to The Thriller Zone. You know, when I began my journey as an author, I knew that I needed a couple of things. I needed a couple of books that I really admired as my research. I needed plenty of pen and paper, or a keyboard is the case. And I needed a website. If I was going to be seen and respected as a successful author, I thought part of my brand should be a quality website. Now, I used to build websites in the past based a lot on WordPress. I think my early days were TypePad. I'd done Squarespace, maybe even a Wix somewhere along the line. But I knew that in order to really step up, I had to use a company that knew what they were doing. That's when I discovered AuthorBytes and AuthorBytes.com. When I was researching websites, I found that Mark Graney had a really cool site. Let's see who, oh, well, Paul Vidic, as we learned on the show today, he has a really great site. Guess what? They're all AuthorBytes. So when it comes time for you to get serious and you want to build a website that says, yeah, I'm an author and I'm taking this seriously. I'm ready to do business. These guys the real deal. Talk to Ken, my buddy Ken. Steve runs the place. I guess they both run the place. Bottom line, go to authorbytes.com. Matter of fact, because they're a brand new sponsor, you can use code THETHRILLERZONE and you'll get three months free hosting 
with an annual hosting plan for your first year. So you're going to sign up, you're going to sign up for a hosting plan, and then you're going to get three months free hosting by just using the code, the thriller zone. Pretty darn easy. Hi, I'm Paul Vidic, author of The Matchmaker. I'm here with David Temple on The Thriller Zone, a great show, and I'm glad to be his guest. And now back to the show. And as we talk about The Matchmaker, uh, a spy in Berlin, first of all, I want to say, who doesn't enjoy a good spy thriller? And the second thing I want to say is, what does it feel like to be compared to uh, one of the greatest spy novelists ever, John le Carré? I mean, what? I, I see this, his name, every time your name is mentioned now. Well, there, there are two things writers are defeated by. <laughs> One is alcohol and the other is praise. <laughs> and, you know, I love Le Carre and I, I read some of those comparisons and, you know, I'm happy that they're, they're made, but I don't put myself in the same category as Le Carre. Yeah. Although I, there are things that are, he he deals with, with care with men and women but mostly men in the bureaucracy of and so he's writing spy stories but he's really writing stories about integrity he's writing love stories he's writing stories about a particular class of englishmen who grow up and then operate in the in this sort of secret world and that to me is is sort of what i try and do as well I mean, my characters are men and women who happen to work in the CIA, but who have lives, complex lives. And those and the, the things that go along with those complex lives influence the choices they make as espionage officers. And just for my listeners who may not know Paul Vidic, I want to pull up a couple of quotes here. In speaking of Le Carre, a booklet says evoking without imitating classic Le Carre. Financial Times says Vidic is an espionage novelist who deserves to be more widely known, finely written and taught. And another, I love this one, Shelf Awareness says, tense and humane Cold War spy thriller will keep readers in suspense right up to the climactic border crossing. Now, we all know what benefits good blurbs can do for a book, but you know that it has to be a little bit heady for you, Paul. You, you you read quotes like this, blurbs like this, and you just go, "Wow!" You know, is there a part of you that goes, "Oh, man, I hadn't thought about that way," and boy, good on me. Uh, yeah, good on me. I I appreciate that, and you know, I I have written blurbs for other people, and of course, you know, a blurb is an advertisement, and and. But of course, you know, it's you, you can you can only be delighted by having, you know, be made be compared to people yeah. like like Le Carre. I mean, Le Carre, one of the things that distinguishes him is he has sort of a lushness of his writing. Yeah. Um, and the an interiority to it. And his 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 thinking is very complex and it's the thinking of his characters is complex. So his plots can sometimes be very tortured and it requires a fair amount of work to, to dig into his stories because it's, it's, he challenges you as a reader, but at the end it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a very complex world that he creates. And I would say that in my opinion, and I think it's also true of, Ian McEwen has said this of him, that uh, Le Carre was, you know, one of the, 
I don't know, five or 10 most important novelists writing in English in the 20th century. Wow. And it's because he, he, he chose really important subjects, themes, and then he went deeply into them with very interesting stories. And one of the unique things about him is that his rise to prominent, prominence as a novelist coincided with the, the rise of the Cold War. And the Cold War is this very tense, dynamic, sort of global competition in which smart men on both sides of ideology, you know, the West and, and Russia, went at each other. And it required the best minds on both sides. <laughs> and, and he captured those characters in his novels, in this global conflict. And this begs a great question. I was looking back at your other novels, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that I have not read your earlier work, but looking at your earlier work, The Mercenary was set in uh, 85 Moscow with a KGB officer who wants to be uh, exfiltrated. Then you follow that up with The Coldest Warrior, love that title, set uh, in 53, involving a cold case concerning a CIA officer. And then again in 53, an honorable man comes out, this time involving a double agent, and then finally the, the good assassin, again in 53, but this time in Cuba, involving a rogue, uh, a rogue agent. And as I was seeing the theme, I, I begged a question for me, why this particular time period for you, Paul? Well, um, 53, the, the first novel, Honorable Man, is set in 53 because it was the the beginning of the Cold War, and it so happened to be based on a, uh, a true story, in which somebody close to Alan Dulles had been turned when he had worked in Austria in the late forties, mm -hmm. and so I basing it on a true story required that it be set there. The uh, the Coldest Warrior is actually set in 1975, but the initiating events are set in 1953. And it too is based on a true story. In this case, the story of my uncle, uh, a guy named Frank Olson, who had been part of the MK Ultra experiments in 1953. He had been a bioweapons scientist working first at Fort Detrick and then for the CIA. And it's a very famous case in which at one point in thanks, the week before Thanksgiving in 1953, he's given LSD unknown to himself at a offsite. Oops. <laughs> and then he's taken to New York to see a shrink who's on the payroll of the CIA. And while he's staying at the Statler Hotel in New York on the 13th floor, he either jumps or falls from the 13th floor and dies. And it's, it was a family tragedy, it remained a, a secret within the CIA that he'd been given LSD until 1975 when the church hearings occurred and the, fan, the CIA family jewels were sort of presented and among them was the case of Frank Olson. So I, I turned that personal story into a novel telling it 
from a, a different point of view. But in any case, it was set based on a, a true story. And the, 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 both the, uh, the other two that you mentioned, the mercenary and the matchmaker, are also based on true stories or historical events. And I found that it, it's, a very, it's a very satisfying thing to pick an historical moment or an historical situation and then take and wrap around it interesting characters and a, and a story that takes with it the gravity of that historical moment. And it's something that I didn't plan to do, but now as I look back at my five novels, each of them has that characteristic. You know, and that that makes me wonder what's next. Now, I, I I have to imagine. I know this book came back, came I dropped in early February, so it's only been out just over a month. Have you already? I have to believe that you're already starting your next work, and will it be in that same kind of a feel and era? It's the the next book is almost done. It's oh. it's done, but now I'm just getting some feedback. And it, I did this, I did, I took an historical event. And in, in each of my novels, I've sort of moved forward in time. Right. So I went from 53 to 59 to 75 to 85, <laughs> 89. Now, the next one is going to be 2006. And it's going to be set in Beirut during the 34-day Hezbollah-Israeli war. Wow. And the war, the Cold War then becomes the war on terror. So it's a it's a slightly it's a, it's a similar book, it's spies, different types of spies, but it is set in this historical moment, 34 days. And the, the 34 days book end the book. I, I'm able to sort of capture this this invasion and all the things that are going on within Beirut at that time. And Beirut sort of I I I I have this sort of sloppy way of finding how to how to start a novel, and it, and it's almost always the case that I start with a place. Place sort of defines the interesting situation that draws people to it. People were drawn to Berlin because there were all these conflicts over the course of fifty years: the Nazis, the Cold War, the Stasi, and Beirut. It so happens to have been the place where there was and continues to be this conflict between Hezbollah, the Israelis, and within it, you have the Americans and you have the Syrians, you have the Iranians. So it's a very you know, interesting uh, and complex situation. Why did you use the word sloppy as a starting point? I don't see that as sloppy. I see it as pretty calculated. Well, it's calculating, but it's it's... And sloppy is probably the wrong word. It's just sort of this, these inchoate feelings. Okay. You know, I, I have a character, I have a place, I have a theme, and it, you know, and I think about novels I liked and, you know, how do they influence me? And all of that is this, this, this sort of, this ether. Got it. From which I have to distill a specific story with a specific set of characters and a specific plot. And so it starts as this cloud <laughs> and then it crystallizes. <laughs> but it, it helps to have a city or a place. Sure. Because place is a very defining thing. And, and it's a little bit like wine. You know, the wine you drink has terrier 
which is the place in which it's grown. And a city and characters in a city are of that place, the language they speak, the accent they use, and those all become part of an important part of the, the storytelling. It's funny you should mention wine because my mind goes right to cocktail, which is why I was sitting here going to ask you why you think so many of us are pulled into literary spy espionage thrillers. And then I recall reading somewhere and you said it, this was perfect. This, this got my attention. Spy fiction blends a tasty cocktail of intrigue, politics, and sex and opens a window into a world that is dangerous, allowing us to live vicariously through its characters. And I could not have said it better. And of course, you had me write a cocktail. <laughs> it's true. I think that's why I write, I, I write the books I would like to read. You yeah. know? And I was a big fan of Graham Greene, of Eric Ambler. And so there's, a, there's an exoticness to, to the places, you know, the, the quiet American in Saigon, you know, and He's smoking dope and, you know, he's got the crazy American pile he dislikes, but it's Saigon, you know, and it's Saigon in the 50s. It's, and I mentioned that because to me, the quiet American is sort of the, the epitome of a, a wonderful, really richly written and compulsively readable spy novel. Yeah. God, compulsively readable. Isn't that a delicious little phrase? By the way, I, I got to mention as I'm, you've got a very, not only do you have a handsome book cover, you got a handsome website and your website pulls you in instantly with that black and white on the top with that beautiful matchmaker book right against it. And I wanted, I could not finish the show without saying that you, you and I both share a great a taste in website developers as I see you and I, an appreciation for the good folks at AuthorBytes. And I've met several folks who have used them. They're all very happy. So Hello to author bites. Yeah, they're very good. I, yeah. For this type of novel, they have a, a graphic design that, that works well with the uh, theme of the novel. Yeah, works well. Before we get to rapid fire questions, which one of our favorite parts of the show, I have to ask, as, as I often do of so many of my authors, and, and, and everyone's got a little, maybe a similar thread, but their own personal signature of it. And I, I get a sense that you're going to give me a great answer here. What would you like to leave my listeners with as it pertains to your best advice on making it as a writer today, especially having had the prolific career in the music business as you did, and then deciding to launch out in that mid fifties range, but kind of that, Hey, if I could step in front of you and give you a little piece of advice, this is what it would be. Patience, patience with the story, patience with the characters, let the story grow on you and don't force it. And you'll find that uh, the story comes out and you're comfortable with it. And if it's something that intrigues you, it will intrigue other people. So patience, I had, a, I went to Wharton, I had one professor, I don't remember much about Wharton, but I do remember one professor and he said to me, patience is a sign of genius. And the only thing I remember of two years of business school is that one thing. Patience is a sign of genius. Did he drill down on that any further? No, but I have. And, okay. and, and I've, I've, I've appreciated it. I, I write with a pen. And the reason I write with a pen and not a typewriter 
is you go more slowly with a pen and you can feel the words coming out of the tip of the pen and going onto the page. And when I've typed, your fingers can go more quickly yeah. and they can go with the speed of your, your mind. But sometimes that allow, doesn't allow you to sort of enjoy and savor the thought. And so writing by hand actually is a more patient way of, of writing, for me at least. I've tried that. I know several writers. James Patterson loves to write with pencil on legal pads. I The only reason I don't do that is because my hand gets tired, and after a while I can't read my own handwriting, so I just kind of give up on it. Well, it's a way of good writing. Nobody can read my handwriting either. Yeah. And even uh, sometimes you, I have a problem with it. But Back in your, let's revisit real quickly here, your Wharton article your advice to people coming to writing later in life because i've i've got a lot of listeners who who are doing that very thing they're in their 40s 50s and in my case 60s and they're coming to it and they, and and you said if you if you have to you have to want to write and you got to really want it and be disciplined and talk to me about this being a craft and not a mystical state right well, I think it is a calling. It is a thing you need to do, want to do, that sort of never lets go of you. Yeah. But once you sort of have that, you need to find the, I'll call the, the, the skills that allow you to write nice sentences. And, and it's like anything else, you need to practice a lot and you need to read other people because you see, you need to look discover how other people have done it well. And once you figure that out, then, you know, like most artists, the first, your first efforts are very imitative. You, you, you hear a song or you see a painting or you read a book and you like it and you say, I can do that. And you do that. It's not you, but the act of imitating the good work of a song or an artist or a writer is to inculcate yourself with the skills needed to accomplish that art. And so you move from that, developing your skills, into a place where the skills are sort of second nature and you can give voice to your own experiences and your, your own stories. But it's a sort of the, the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hour yes. rule. You know, whatever you do, You've got to do it for 10,000 hours before you're, you know, good at it. And, and so that's a part of patience. If you think, oh, I'm going to go off and write a book and it's going to take a year and you do it and it isn't any good. Well, you actually have 10,000 hours is many years, not a <laughs> single year. I wrote, I don't know, three or four novels in my 20s. And they were terrible, but I could never have written the first book I got published without having written the four terrible novels. And so you have to be able to commit yourself to the process of learning the craft, studying how other people have done it, and then taking your time with your own work. That's so superb. And there's a, along with Malcolm's 10,000 hours, there's a rule in Hollywood, having lived there a couple of times, that says, you know, it, it takes about 10 years to really make it. And I think that that's, 
there's something about that, whether there's um, some mystical, magical number 10 or whatever, but you got to put in the time and, you, you know, you have to evolve and mature and, and ripen in the process before you can do that anyway, you know? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I was one of those people in my 20s said was very envious of those people in their 20s who had become, you know, suddenly famous because they'd written a book or they'd hit a song. And right now, you know, many of those people, nobody knows. They've, they've forgotten. They had one hit. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that you need to do if you're going to be serious at this is you, you have to know that you're not writing one book. You're really writing two books, three books, four books, five books. And you have to think of this as a bit of a marathon. You've got to be running for a longer, you know, game than, than, you know, for the short game. But it's a hard thing, hard thing to be told if you're 25 that your success will come until you're 65. Yeah, exactly. Well, that is a perfect tee up to a time for rapid fire questions. And there's only going to be four of them here. First one's a favorite. Number one, what book is on your coffee or bedside table right now that you're currently reading? Len Dighton's Berlin Game. Great novelist I, in my genre. And I once read The Ipcris File and didn't like it. And I was told by somebody, well, you really have to read his Bernard Sampson books, which starts with Berlin Game. And it's a wonderful book. And to your just recently uh, made point that you've got to read the guys that you admire. You got to read the people who are out there doing it. To, right. Absolutely. And, yeah. And, you know, after all, I, I had a recent conversation with Jeffrey Deaver and, you know, there's a guy I massively admire and I admire his complexity and his, the way he is able to weave so many deep pieces to his story and you don't you aren't able to really absorb learn and absorb those kind of things until you read it and and it is doesn't become a point at that point it doesn't become a matter of you mimicking it 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 becomes a matter of you taking your inside knowledge and your passions and using for instance his outlining process to really hit a home run right yeah Okay, question number two, rapid fire question. Matchmaker has just been optioned by Hollywood to be made into a major motion picture. Big applause for that, by the way. In order to make the deal stick, you have to play a role in the film, Paul. And I don't know if you see yourself as a thespian, but I do. And I, you're going to have to do it. It can be big or small. And having been in the entertainment business, you're no stranger to the limelight. So which role would you play and who would you choose as your leading man? Unless you were, of course, the leading man. I would play Dr. Knapp, who is a sort of small character. He's a guy who's described as, he has a toupee, and he's described as as, as false as his toupee. I love that. And, you know, it's a little bit like Hitchcock, you know. He always plays a very, very minor role in his movies. Yeah. And so I play a minor role in the book. You know, I don't know who the main, well, I would say this, the, the main character is a woman, Anne Simpson. So the, the, if, if I could bring back Alita Valley from the past, 
Okay. She's obviously no longer with us. Sure. But she was the star, uh, the young woman who was a star in The Third Man, Carol Reed's Third Man, which is this brilliant black and white movie done in the early 50s. And she has that sort of rich Italian glamour. And that's, you know, and, but was always, but was a very, you know, a feisty woman as well. And I was, when I was writing Ann Simpson, she would have been the American counterpart of Alita Valley, I think. Oh, nice. Question number three on Rapid Fire Questions. You have a chance to go come into my Thriller Zone laboratory. And as we were just referencing, you can get to go back in time and live in any one of the time periods and respective countries you've written about in these past five novels. Which era do you suppose that would be and which country would you choose and why? I would have chosen probably 1948, 49, 50 in Vienna. It was a divided city. Again, it's the third man, the Carol Reed production of the Graham Greene novel. And it's just an evocative time. It was, it was after the war and you had you know, the Russians, the French, the British, the Soviets. And, and it, was a, it was a city struggling to get back to its, its glamor. And, and for people living there, that you were making difficult choices and you had to, you had to deal with the, all the, the trauma of the war. So there was a lot of optimism. At the same time, there was a lot of pessimism and cynicism because the world had changed. But anyways, I think about that period as like, that was a tipping point. And yeah. it's always good in history to live through tipping points because it forces you to think about yourself and forces you to think about the world you're, you're in. The, the, the dullest times are when we're happy content and the market's good it's like what's going on well we're just happy it's, it's a good time everyone's doing well you know yeah. but those are dull times if you're writing a novel your second malcolm gladwell reference i like that and finally number four rapid fire along a similar path if you could go back to your teenage self and you kind of referenced this earlier in the conversation which i really love but we're going to go back further than your 20s when you said "Ooh, i got to go get a real job you're going to go back to your teenage self, having the knowledge and the wisdom that you've acquired thus far. What would you tell your younger self as it pertains to taking a career path? Be patient. I'm now going back because it's my 50th college reunion, and which I never, I never thought we'd ever get to our 50th college reunion. But I've had some very nice conversations with people in my class, Steve Schiff and another person who graduated with me and, and I asked them the question. So what did you think you were gonna do when you were getting out of college? Because where we ended up is not probably where we thought we were gonna end up. And, and I think the, the, the thing that you, that you, in college and in high school, you've got this sort of broad vision in front of you. It's sort of the open arc of your life. And you're, you're uh, a little bit, you're very intrigued, but you're also a little bit humbled and, and you don't really know how to make a decision about who you want to be. People tell you you should be a doctor or a writer or a lawyer or an accountant, but you have no idea what that, what that means. And so, you know, what I would tell myself would be, you know, try different things. 
Yeah. Open yourself up to possibilities because that is where the, the richness of experience will begin to help you shape the decisions you need to make as you're going forward. Nicely done, sir. Nicely done. Well, this has been really fantastic, I got to tell you. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. And I'm glad that we could talk about music, radio, technology, as well as literature. Yeah, you know, we can, I can always, you know, run down the same litany of questions, but that's not always, you know, I'd like to know who you are and what, 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 how you came about finding your way in this world and, and to, to craft, to craft a story as rich and compelling as the matchmaker, you have to have had rich, a rich tapestry of life experience. So that's, that's kind of why I dial into that, Paul. If you'd like more information, you can visit paulvidic.com. You can follow him on Twitter and Facebook like I do, at Paul Vidic. And until we meet again, I we, we're all going to be sitting here anxiously awaiting that number six, which is going to be the next era of this great spy thriller world that you've created for us, Paul. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to that as well. Yeah. Well, thank you again, and I trust you'll have a great day. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Paul. That was terrific fun and uh, cool learning about the inside secrets to the music world. Music biz, huh? Steve Jobs, what a great story. And the book, The Matchmaker, terrific read. All right, next week, we are going to be talking with a gal who's got probably one of the coolest names I've ever seen, ever heard, Avanti Centre. Avanti Centre. And the book is The Doomsday Medallion. It's a Van Ops thriller. This gal is not just a local bookseller or a best-selling author. She's an international best-selling author. She's a big gun, and that gun is coming to this show. We're going to get some Doomsday Medallion up in it. I've been uh, following her, and uh, eh, let's admit it, I've been stalking her on Instagram and Twitter and so forth, and just kind of watching her growth over the last few months getting prepared for this book and i'm pretty excited about it i gotta admit hey before i go quick reminder do me a favor would you stop by the thrillerzone.com and you can leave us a voicemail there's a little red button on the side of the screen there you can leave us a voicemail tell us what you think about the show or if you prefer email drop us a note at the thrillerzone at gmail.com of course you're going to the website the thrillerzone.com and you're leaving a email at the thrillerzone at gmail.com. Makes sense, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be cool if the YouTube channel was just as easy like youtube.com slash the thrillerzone? <laughs> if young Buck here would have thought about that when he was setting up David Temple Author, could have saved me some hassle. But anyway, we get to 100 subscribers and we're there. About speaking of which, swing by the YouTube channel if you like watching the show and uh, subscribe. Hit that little red subscribe button. We really would appreciate it. And while you're sharing your love for The Thriller Zone, swing by your Apple podcast if you listen there or Google or Spotify or Stitcher or iHeartRadio, wherever you listen, and just drop us a note. Rate the show. Five stars is cool. Four stars is great too. But take a moment. Let us know how we're doing. We'd really appreciate it. Okay. Until next week, I'm David Temple, your host right here on The Thriller Zone.
The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.